Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact in association with The Telegraph. I'm Brian Moore and over the course of the podcast, we'll be hearing from former England centre Mike Tyndall, former Welsh wing David James and current Montpellier coach Richie Gray. Plus Paul Cook updates us on the Rugby League World Cup and the RFU uh, Director of Professional Rugby, Nigel Melville, discusses the women's Premier 15s. First, I'm joined here in the studio by the former Scotland international Hugo Southwell. Hugo, how are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. Good, mate. Look, we've got um, some premiership stuff to go through before we have a chat about the uh, England side and what, what's coming up. Now, your what, 21 or 22, a thrilling win in the end, very, very last gasp for Gloucester, but uh, do you think they deserve the win away at the wreck? Well, I think uh, you talk about games uh, like this, there's so much emotion involved. And you saw after the final whistle in the change room, I don't know if you've seen it, the celebrations yes. were absolutely immense. But, uh, you know, they, they were they were worthy winners, I think, in the end. They, they they came back into the game. Bath probably should have uh, should have killed it. I think with 50 seconds to go, they kicked the ball out of play and gave another opportunity to Gloucester. But for me, just that they had those moments, that moment of brilliance from uh, guys like Trinder, the offload from John Afoa out the back. Yes. I mean, that is just brilliant to see these days. You know, forwards, we talk about the scrummaging, we talk about the set piece, but props doing that. He had a little look and then out the back inside to, to his captain, Will Hines, who scored two on the day. But all in all, I just think there was a bit extra class from Gloucester when they needed it. Ed Slater, I, I've always liked Slater as a player because he's a very solid, no-nonsense uh, you know exactly what you get with him. You know the level of effort he's going to put in, the standard of uh, commitment. And I think he and his style of play is something that Gloucester need more more of. Yeah, I can't believe I actually didn't mention him in that first bit. I mean, he was absolutely outstanding. Uh, he was he was everything that was good about that Gloucester performance. And, uh, you know, for me, for Gloucester, it's all about consistency of performance. We've seen what they can do. We've seen it in glimpses this year. Yes, they've been unlucky with injury, like Wasp, been very unlucky with injury. But they just need to get a more consistent performance across the season. If they can get three or four games on the trot under their belt, I think they're going to, you know, start creeping up the league. Well, Wasps still have some creeping to do because their lowly position belies you know, their squad and the depth they've got there. But uh, they started just to turn the corner. Uh, it was a good away win at Franklin's Gardens, 38-22 over Northampton. Is it, is it simply a question of getting their players back? Or is there something a little bit more fundamental from your point of view? For me, I think it's a combination of both. I think last year where they really struggled, um, sorry, sorry, this year where they struggled early in the season compared to last year is that they defensively, they haven't been great over the last two years. Mm-hmm. But attacking-wise, last year, um, they, they managed just to score more points than the opposition. I know that's the aim of the game, but they would win games 40-30. This year, their attacks um, gone off radar a bit, and defensively, they've been leaking points. And for me, the turnaround over the last uh, few weeks since the Ulster game away has been that defensive effort. They've got the defence fe- defense right, and the attack has fed off that, and it's given the guys confidence. And, and I feel, I said on Twitter in the week, I feel Watson now turned the corner. I was at the Quinns game. Yep. You know, Quinns weren't at their best, but still, defensively, Wasps were absolutely outstanding. And the 40, 46 or 41 points they scored um, was irrelevant to what, uh, what was created through a sort of Saracen-style 
you know, smothering of defence, creating yeah. opportunities from from your defensive efforts. So I feel they've turned the corner now. They just have to build on it. Another huge win away at Franklin's Gardens. Northampton were on form. You know, they're a side um, on the up, on form, and Wasco and uh, score a bonus point there. So a huge result for them. Well, let's have a look at the top three because Saracens did an expected number over London Irish, 44-13. Uh, not much to say about that. Another very professional performance by Saris. When they're in this mood and when they're at home, you don't back many sides to beat them. No, and what's difficult is that after 60 minutes, London Irish were in the game. You know, London Irish, um, I think it was David Pace's tried, got them back within seven points and they, they had a sniff, but the class then shone through. You know, they scored three or four tries in the last 20 minutes. Suddenly it's a 40-point result. And, you know, that is Saracens. They're not, they weren't necessarily, whether London Irish were, were playing well or Saracens weren't at their best, you know, 20 minutes and they've absolutely blitzed the game. Mm-hmm. So they're flying high again. Um, Exeter uh, scraped to win at Sale, I think by 10 points to six. Yeah, it was, I mean, I, went, well, I watched the game and to say it was, it, it, well, it wasn't quite fair to say it was dull, but there was a lot of phases. You know, people just going through the phases, very good defence, uh, people being able to keep the ball, no real penetration. And it does show that actually these ball statistics of, well, the ball's in play, you know, for five, ten minutes longer, it doesn't mean anything unless something actually happens with it. Uh, so, you know, I felt a bit sorry for the crowd, but Exeter just saw it out. And, and with, with Sale, I, I felt at, the, at times it's just this situation where... If you get into a, a a winning habit and you know and you've got the confidence that it will come, you don't make the small mistakes, the knock-ons, the grabbing, you know, the extra pass or the forced pass. You just wait until the time is right. And I just felt that that was as much a loss that came that was born of you know not having a winning habit as the fact that Exeter just just sat still and, and waited for it to come. Yeah, you felt it was a real opportunity for sale. You know, yeah. it was there for them to take both hands, grab it at home and, and really kick on from there. And, you know, on the flip side of it, Exeter, you know, they win games like this now. You know, they yeah. they are, you know, premiership champions. They come into games like this expecting, even if they're not playing well, to get a result uh, at places like sale that are very difficult to go now. You know, they made some good signings. Obviously, we know Marlon Yard uh, going there as well very shortly. So, you know, they will be a side that develops as the season goes on. But for Exeter, they are there. They're the finished article. They've had some brilliant results in Europe yeah. over the last few weeks. Uh, and, and they're there to, to be a serious challenge on both fronts. And I don't think, I tell you what, the more I see of him and the more uh, I feel I understand just that Steenson is absolutely pivotal to what they do, doesn't he? He's not a player who attracts the biggest headlines. But you just watch what he does and the times he does it now. He's, a, he's as good a game manager as... As you know, as any of his peers, really. Yeah, and you've got to give credit to Rob Baxter with how he gets the best out of players that yep. go down to Exeter. You know, that's what I love about, you know, they've got a great team spirit. They've got a great culture. You know, they've, they've, they've yes, they've made some quality signings as well, but the likes of Steenson, 200 games for Exeter, he's been there for a long time. He knows the club inside out and he's a quality operator. I, I liken him to someone like Stephen Milo when he was in his, in his prime at Northampton Saints. Guys that, you know, you're not going to turn around and go, he's going to be a break the line 10 times but he's going to do everything very very well and he's going to control a game and that's exactly what they need at Exeter uh, You mentioned Marlon Yard there's something I mean I don't know the bottom of this but drop for uh, reasons about not being where you should be suggests to me that whatever code Quinns have got about uh, you know about time for training and so on has been broken whether deliberately or not I don't know um, but to just be shipped out seemingly very quickly Suggests that things are not well there, and that's not a a situation. And I'm not. It's not just. It's not personal with Yard. I I don't want to see that sort of thing, you know, occurring in rugby at all. Really, you don't want players to be to be jumping, you know, or moving uh, clubs before the ends of seasons. That's not what rugby's been like. I I can't see it, you know, being a favourable thing. Um, and I wish it hadn't happened. Well, you think you have to think or believe that this is a bit of an exception. You feel that uh, what's been said, he's been forced out rather than uh, choosing to, to leave himself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, something's gone on. 
chat of missing a few training sessions, uh, whatever it is, um, you know, he's moved on mid-season. Let's hope it's not uh, something that uh, occurs in, in years to come or, or in this season. But he only had six months left on his contract. He's moved to sale, uh, a sort of early move. And, you know, best of luck to him. He, he needs to get his game back on track and, and try and get back in that squad. We've seen that he hasn't been called up uh, as a replacement to, to, for Elliot Daly. So. No, uh, just uh, as we speak, it's just been announced that... Uh, uh, Rocky Daguni has been uh, well, and and frankly, when you look at the way he's been playing, um, there was a very big case for him being included uh, from the off. Actually, I, you always, there are always reasons to not pick players and to pick them, and you can justify as a selector choosing negatively or positively on any occasion. And I feel quite sorry for Rocky Daguni because I think actually um, he's had piecemeal chances and that's always very difficult for a player because you're always on edge trying to do everything in one go when actually it's preferable if you say actually you've got the whole six nations yeah, I totally agree with you and especially as a winger you know you can go from getting a lot of ball with Bath to suddenly uh, going to play for England and not getting as much ball trying to force it mm-hmm. trying to make things happen when, when, when it's necessarily not on so I have to agree with you he needs to be given an extended run in the team he has, he has got quality both in attack we've seen how many tries he scored this year you know just two at the weekend again he's always there at the right place at the right time and you know you can't, you can't buy that it's just he's a try scorer he's an out and out try scorer and defensively he's pretty good as well so yeah. give him a run in the team he, he was un- unlucky last time because he got injured just at the wrong time um, just after he'd, he'd had one game he will get a run hopefully uh, in, in the test team maybe three games in the autumn and, and stake his claim for the Six Nations Well looking at the back three I mean I, I wrote a column and I said ironically Eddie Jones's problems such as they are in terms of selection have not changed since the day he came in he's got better options in a lot of positions now because he's more, more players but still outside centre um, still back row composition and still back three are not nailed down. You know, you couldn't name with absolute certainty. And he's getting to the stage now where, yeah, you've got this autumn set of internationals. But ideally, when you're getting down to 18 months with the Six Nations, you want to have pretty much your 23 in, in outline at least, uh, barring one or two. And I don't think in those positions... You know, he's, he's, he's definitely decided. Now, you need, I think, to have an experiment in the back three because if Mike Brown gets injured, we all know what Mike Brown does really well. We all know some limitations. Uh, you know, but he's never let England down. And I know that he's very popular with Jones. But if he were to get a serious and longer-term injury, there's no absolute plan B and never name C. So if he's going to play Daly or someone else there, I think in these autumns, this is at least the opportunity to do it. I totally agree. I think the, these games are, are crucial to the development, the longer term development for Six Nations World Cup, where it gets far more serious. And, you know, I think it's all about the balance of the back three. It's, it's, it's you know, Rocco de Gooney's on, on form. Johnny May's on, on, you know, scoring tries for fun as well. Um, you know, Anthony Watson... Elliot Daly's play on the left wing is that his best position? Probably not, but he fits in into Eddie Jones's uh, um, setup there. But for me, you know, if you're going to play as you say, Elliot Daly at fullback, who, who's an excellent fullback on bias because obviously played with him at Wasp, but yeah. or Anthony Watson, who's who's also outstanding, who's playing playing fullback at the moment um, at, at Bath, then you have to give them the opportunity now. Um, let's see what happens in that first game. Um, you know, it's a huge first game to to see uh, more what Eddie Jones is thinking going forward longer term. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's have a look at the issues surrounding this impromptu session. England are going to have a forward session against Wales. Did this? I, I, I have never heard of this happening before. I would like to have a camera down there, to be honest. <laughs> uh, what do you think of the overall concept? Ah, <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I mean, I, I get the concept. I get the what live would you scenario. Like, would you like to do it as a player, though? It's all right. I was a back. I wouldn't get involved. I'll just watch it from afar. It's fine. Um, but but seeing how much uh, what happened in driving malls, especially in training, that was in bet- that was between you know the, the sort of Scotland full team and and the, and the reserves. It does get pretty niggly. So you can imagine in a, to England Wales driving line out scrums. It's going to get pretty feisty. And uh, yeah. you know I think 
the relationship of, of the coaches out on the Lions tour, Steve Borthwick and Warren Gatlin, it came from that. There was chat that maybe that uh, Georgia were going to come in and, and provide an opposition for England, a bit too far to fly in for the day. So they've gone, they've gone for Wales, potentially doing it in Bristol. Um, and, uh, you know, as long as it's refereed well, I think Nigel Owens is going to be the man with the whistle, the right man to have. Oh, well, that's, that's, uh, <laughs> that fills me with a bit more faith. Um, look, I, and at the end of the day, the players have, should, they remember they're pros now. You know, they've all got to go to work again. They all want to be fit. Um, and irrespective of trying to get one over, I'm sure that the first thing they all wanted to make sure is they come out of the other end of whatever joint session they have uninjured. So, But um, that will be interesting. As I say, I, if, they're, if they're sensible, it will be behind closed doors and they won't have it recorded anywhere. Time now to speak to the former England, Bath and Gloucester Centre. Mike Tyndall. Mike, hello, mate. How are you? I'm very well, Brian. How about yourself? Uh, OK. Um, did you ever fancy having a, a pre-international a pre <laughs> uh, run-out against your opposite number from Wales? Um, yeah, it's a strange one, that one, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I would always fancy playing Wales. It's always a good crack. You know, <laughs> just a way to start off, get a few injuries just before you go into the autumn series. It'd be perfect, yeah. Well, look, Bath, we, we were just discussing Bath-Gloucester. Um, a good win for Gloucester. Probably, I think, in the end, uh, uh, just about deserved. And uh, we, we've always said with Gloucester, where is this elusive consistency going to come from? Um, is it too soon to talk about that? Or is it just, uh, can we say it's at least a step forward? I uh, I generally believe since Johan Ackerman's come in, it is a big step forward, I think. Um, at the same time, he gives you heart attacks left, right and centre because he just wants the boys to play. Mm-hmm. And you think sometimes, you know, the only thing I'd I'd say about the way they play is there's, there's times where they're going backwards for four or five phases and they still refuse to kick it and, and then they make, they make a few errors. But I think he's trying to build an understanding around that, but it, it favours the attack first and having spoken to him and, and just watched his interviews, I, I think you know, what's been missing for the last few years and was, you know, was even there sort of the last couple of years, we thought we'd turned the corner with um, Davies in the, in the first year, but then obviously finished, you know, ninth that last year and we finished in eighth or ninth every year since. But I think he's, he's bringing back like a culture. He's trying to set a standard where he wants the players who really want to pull on the jersey and want to play. And if they give everything, They'll they'll get picked again. Whereas if he thinks they slack off, he'll, he'll rotate people. So I think he's he's, he's challenging them, challenging them in that way. And I'm hearing only good things coming out of the out of the the player group from from that side about him. So uh, I th- I'm hoping that, that that consistency is going to come. I, I think to go to Bath and, and win. Uh, I know Hazy said it once. It, it makes going around Tesco's in, in Gloucester <laughs> a, a little bit easier if you if you've got a win over Bath. If you if the next week doesn't go so well, but I think I think what they are showing is attacking in intent. Yes, they 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 need to get a balance between that, but I prefer them to go the way that they're going now than than just playing everything down there, just kicking everything and allowing anyone else to to have a go at them. So uh, it's very much positive for me so far, and I think Johan Ackerman is going to do a great job for us. Tins, it's Hugo here. How's it going? Hello, mate. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Just um, aside from the performances from, from Ed Slater, John Afoa, guys in the forwards that really stood up, how much has Henry Trinder added um, since he's come back from injury? You know, he's, he's put in some, some, for me, some outstanding performances. Yeah, at the moment, he's, he's, the, best, he's the best I've ever seen him. Obviously, played with him um, for a couple of years. Just one of those guys who, who just can't, have a run of form and all we want to do is see him have that run of form I think you know he came back last year from it you know back well he had back to back sort of horrendous knee injuries and he just looked like uh, <laughs> I rang him after one game last year and said mate you've, you've got to take that 20 kilo plate off your back because it is really slowing you down I think I could beat you in a race and uh, and he seems to have done that this year he denied it but I still could have taken him I think <laughs> and he, he denied it. he sort of came back and he looks over he's got back to his fitness he looks so sharp his footwork's outstanding and what people do underestimate him is how powerful he carries into contact and he's blasts through people as well as having the silky footwork to beat people on the pass and, and step people and go through a hole he has that power to, to punch through and you know we all saw with that try set up for Billy uh, 12 trees he's got the skills to, to finish things off and you know 
a 13 with a good left boot as well is is always a valuable asset and um, at the moment he's just he's playing out of his skin and I was always looking forward to that him against Joseph and you know I, th- I think we got the best out of both of them they both played exceptionally well in that game and, mm-hmm. uh, and I look forward to hopefully him continuing that way Well it's interesting you say that because you know for a long time England um, it was said look where are the 13s we haven't got any who can you shoehorn in there and then all of a sudden you've got players you know you've got Joseph Daly and the one when you're talking about deceptive carrying Henry Slade for me for Exeter's been given the job of taking the ball up and all right he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't truck it up and crunch it up but by dint of of footwork and spinning out of tackles he's proved to be actually you know a very good uh, you know carrier beyond the beyond the gain line yeah he's uh, he's fully added some strings to his bow over the summer and he comes back came back and I think you know he was one of those guys who who played so well in his first year. Then obviously broke his leg and taken a little bit of time to get back to where he's playing. And and as I say, I think his confidence now is he can be a ball player at the line as a twelve. But then if he, if they push him to thirteen, he's running those lines. He's got a great offloading game. Um, he's got genuine pace as well. And and you know I think yeah I'd love to see him in a tw- in a twelve jersey as a as a a, a challenger for. I, I always like to think that. Uh, Farrell and Forge compete for ten, and I think Slade would be a perfect playmaker. He can he can also carry it off the ten if they need it. They need a little hit, uh, and then you've got the the people who can bounce around at thirteen. But I think you know, as you said, we we now seem to have an abundance of options and actual genuine options that people are talking about, rather than people who can fill a gap. They're actually competition spots, and and that's that's all we want. Hugo and I were chatting about the back three and from various things from injuries lack of form and people in and out that's still not been nailed down when when it, when everyone's available what do you think uh, jones is looking out for his top 3 <laughs> it's, it's tough to be fair you know i think you know everyone's talked about mike browns under a lot of pressure and I, you know i think after the summer with how how watson went on you know i think i think he is under a bit of pressure um whether, but he's so important, like Hartley, he's so important to how Eddie Jones wants. He wants that edge, and he's always been his his banker at the back. But, you know, I think with Quinns having had a few quiet seasons, he's had quiet seasons as well, but uh, played a little bit better. He played better on the weekend. But mine, at the moment for me, I'd always have Jack Noel in the team because of how he works. I'd have, I think I'd have Watson at fullback. And then at the moment, yeah, I, I can't look past people like Rocco Daguni and what he has to do to get in the team, but then Johnny May scoring for fun as yep. well. And so you do have this option. I think I'd go, because I want, the way they want to play, I want people to light it up from the back. So I'd probably go Watson, May, and then Jack Noel, probably. Yeah, I, 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 we were speaking about it beforehand, and obviously. You know, Elliot Daly for me is is not necessarily a winger. You know, we've, we he should be playing potentially or vying for uh, for the fullback slot at the moment. I think he's probably just you know he, he will he get an opportunity at thirteen one day. There's there's now too many thirteens um, uh, in in the picture. I think, but you know, for me, I, I agree with you, Anthony Watson. Um, Rocket Aguni, I just I can't believe that he hasn't got a more of a sniff. He hasn't got called up until probably ten minutes ago when they uh, when they made the replacement for for Elliot Daly. So you know, hopefully he'll he'll get a sniff, and then you know if if uh, Jack Nell and Johnny May, uh, it's a it's a it's a toss up between those two for me. So so very similar, but it's a it's a nice choice to have, I guess. Yeah, I, I mean, I still I uh, the way I saw them see the midfield is I would like Slade to be contest, contesting for that twelve spot. I would. But Farrell and Ford to be contesting at ten uh, because I think when they play together they they play like two tens and that sometimes doesn't give them any options when they need it off their shoulders. Um, saying that you know Farrell's he is he has to be in the team because of, of how he is. So if he feels that Ford's that best option, and then I think they you know those guys at thirteen should be contesting. You know I think in some ways Elliot Daly was unlucky not to be playing thirteen last year. I thought he was the he was the best. 13 that we we had out there at the, at the time um and i prefer him just going straight having straight contests with joseph trinder uh slade that, that well he's, i prefer slade at 12 but those guys all going toe to toe for that 13 but that's what you want you want people you don't want to fit people in you want people who are generally contesting in their own mm-hmm. positions i just don't like playing a center or you know or someone who plays more center and fullback rather than the winger playing on the wing i think you saw that in that first 
the first time he played there when he get red carded after five minutes. You know, you just when you had viable wing options, you just didn't need to play him there. And I, I know he's got a great left boot. And I know he's got a long play uh, shot at goal, which gives you another bow. But if that's the bow that you want to go, then I think he was playing well enough to be playing 13. You know? um, but that's the hard decisions that a coach has got to make. And unfortunately, we can give opinions on them all day long, but only his only his count, don't they? <laughs> but yeah. it's a great it's a great problem for him to have. Well, I think just just finally, I mean, one of the things that I think I, I said, I don't think the actual questions that were quite important when Eddie Jones came in to solve have actually been solved. But he does have more options and more players from which to try and solve them. Would you would you agree now? Uh, yeah, I, I think he's, he's got more genuine viable options now mm-hmm. than he's, had, he's ever had in terms of what he can do with the team. Now, the question, the next question is, is how long does he give them until he has yeah. to start put, pinning his stripes on people and looking, you know, with a with eighteen months to go, looking at what he's going to do for for Japan, and um, that's that's going to be a question. I mean, it's going to be formed through the autumn and then through the Six Nations, but then. You know, this this is basically a year you've really got to be impressed and trying to get Absolutely. get yourself nailed in in the in Eddie Jones's mind that he's he's the one that you want to take forward or you're the one that he wants to take forward. Well, it's a lot easier from where we sit, but then again, we're not paid to make the decisions, and he is, so um, we can sit back and uh, and watch with interest. Mike, yeah. great as always. Thanks very much, mate. No worries, pal. Take care. Thanks. Thank you. Cheers, mate. Cheers. Here you go. Cheers, Cheers. Pal. Okay, time now to turn our attention to the Guinness Pro 14. I'm very pleased to say. We can speak to the former Lions, Wales and Scarlets wing, David uh, James. Hello, David. Hello. Now, um, Scarlets, not unexpected because it was the uh, the Cardiff Blues, but they haven't quite hit the straps of last year, but they're still winning. So how confident are you that they can repeat their triumphs of last season? They've done exceptionally well. I think they've carried their fortunes from last season over um, a little bit into the season. But you know they, they've lost two two games on the bounce in the uh, Champions Cup uh, with Toulon and uh, obviously Bath, which they should have should have put away really. However, you know you have to win your home games. It's a must in this competition. Otherwise, it's uh, it's one heck of a challenge trying to uh, qualify. So yeah, they, they've had a good run of form. They've probably been the, the most consistent uh, region in Wales. Uh, for the last 18 months in particular, and uh, especially this season. Hi, David. It's Hugo Southall here. How's it going? Uh, well, mate. Are you okay? Yeah, yeah, very well. Thank you. Very well. Yeah, just um, the, those those two losses in Europe, you know, similar to Glasgow, they got themselves into a position, you know, over the last few years of being top or near the top of, of the Pro 14. Um, how disappointed do you think they'll be? How, how keen were they to take it to the next level and compete on both fronts? Well, absolutely. Uh, you know, you hit the pertinent point there. It's all about uh, being consistent and, and finishing in uh, quite quite high up in the uh, Champions Cup. But, um, you know, look, they'll be ruining that loss against Bath in particular at home. I think, uh, you know, they played a lot of rugby. However, Rhys Priestland was exceptional and he's earned himself a place back in the world squad. But, you know, they, they have to be clinical. I think in Wales, at this moment in time, I think for, across all four regions, we're not clinical or ruthless enough uh, when there's opportunities we need to capitalise. However, the Scarlets have played the best sort of uh, brand of rugby. They're going back to throwing the ball and uh, throwing the ball around and creating opportunities, uh, you know, free in the hands and running into spaces, not faces, shall I say. And, uh, you know, it's more more entertaining to watch. But, uh, yeah, it's difficult uh, where you put them at the moment because when they come up against good quality sides, they seem to come a little bit unstuck. When you look at the players involved in, say, the, the Ospreys. They, they have quality there and yet we're just waiting for them to, to kick on. Is it, is it close or is it still going to be a couple of seasons before they manage to find their feet, them and certainly the, 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 the Blues to a certain extent and de- definitely the Dragons? Yeah, well, I, <laughs> it's a difficult one really. I think uh, with, the, with the squad that the, the Ospreys have in particular, they shouldn't be in the position they are. I think uh, there's obviously something drastically wrong there. I, I believe it's, uh, you know, the coaching staff are not getting the message across to the players well. There's something that's lacking there and the, and the way that they've performed this year has been very much substandard. The Blues, it's always a difficult one. Uh, you've seen now with Danny Wilson who's decided that he's going to be leaving the Blues after next season. That's purely down to politics and uh, not having a financial or so, well, the checkbook available to him to go out and get his own players. So, you know, there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes, really. And I think 
you know, there's a lot of quality players within all four regions, it should be said. However, mm-hmm. they're not getting the best out of the players, which is, uh, which is a pity. Oh, I was uh, chatting to Hugo before you came on, and we were talking about the way that the cheaters of the two South African um, franchises have come in. And I was saying, I think it's been very important that they've performed you know, reasonably well as they have done for the credibility um, of of their their entry, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's it's a new stimulus. It uh, just brings that n- another little bit of a zest, shall we say, and you know, interest. Um, obviously, they 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 left the Super 15s franchises and uh, they've come up here to apply their trade, and you know, it just brings that little bit more interest. And it's important that they embrace it. I think it's going to be difficult because of the logistics. They, these guys are going to be on the plane a hell of a lot and away from their families. But are they used to that from the Super 15s? That's a question to be asked. But, you know, it's whether they turn up and perform. At this moment in time, they seem to be doing relatively well. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm delighted, really. I'd just like to see more crowds coming out to watch them, especially when they're in South Africa. And, David, looking at the, 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 the worst sides in the leagues, you know, you've got obviously Scarlets at the top of Conference B, Dragons near the bottom, and then at the bottom of Conference A, Ospreys and Cardiff. How do you think that'll affect uh, the performances of, of Wales going into the uh, Autumn Internationals? Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it doesn't uh, bode well looking at that, does it, really? Um, I think it, it's a different entity. I'm not, I'm not quite sure how it works in Scotland, but, you know, there is that sort of pride in the Welsh jersey. I'm pretty sure it's just similar with uh, Scotland, you know, with the two regions. There's only four in Wales. But um, Warren Gatland seems to amalgamate the, the four regions of the guys coming into the squad, and uh, there's a different mindset when they come together, and they always seem to... You know, come there or there. It's going to be a tough ask. It has to be said. I think you know, playing, you know, the Tri Nations as, as it were, South Africa, New Zealand, and Australia, and then we got the might of Georgia, who are looking to push into the Six Nations, I believe. So it's it's not going to be an easy one. And I think we're not blessed as uh, probably the same as Scotland with a whole pool of quality players across the board. So. I think when they come into the camp, uh, they certainly do turn the screw and there's a, a different sort of mindset, which is fantastic. However, it's going to be a tall ask. Well, one of the things that might improve or might not improve their performance is the fact that they have just we've just found out they're going to have a joint forwards training session. Now, <laughs> now whose, whose idea was this, do you know? Oh, I don't know. It's, far, it's laughable, isn't it, really? I think... You know, the, the concept is probably quite good, having a live sort of challenging international set of forwards scrimmage in the case here. However, in reality, I think sense isn't really prevailing, is it, really? It'd be great for the likes of yourself, Brian. What? But um, <laughs> I think there'd be some bloodshed, let's put it that way, and I think there'd be some uh, some stitches on, uh, on show. But it, it, it's a difficult one because I think in order to try and get the best out of players, you have to perform it or, or practice against good quality players. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what they're probably aiming to do. But, you know, look, there's going to be a lot of tension in there. Imagine going up for the first scrum. Well, I tell you the, pro- I, I tell you the, prob- <laughs> the problem is this. Uh, from a forwards point of view, especially if you know you're going to play against your opposite number in a full international, bearing in mind, yeah, if it's going to be refereed by Nigel Owens, you'll abide by the things. You won't want to injure anybody. You don't want to drop something on someone's neck or anything. But tell you what, if you're starting to go backwards... You are not going to want to lose face and have that psychological Absolutely. imperative. So you're just going to drop the scrum, and because well, exactly. and and because and because no one can send you. Oh, they can send you off, but there's no consequence. I tell you what, I would drop 14 scrums rather than go backwards an inch against my opposite number, and that's a real problem I foresee. You know, when you're trying to get people to do sensible things, it's the fact that your pride and your psychological edge is at stake. And, you know, I'll be, I would have been damned if I would give an inch. And I'm pretty sure that front rows and front five players haven't changed that much in their terms of their psyche. No, no, I, I totally uh, agree with what, everything you've said there. I think, uh, you know, realistically, it's probably, in reality, I should say, it's uh, probably not going to be a great idea. And, uh, you know, it's going to be bragging rights, isn't it, really? Mm-hmm. The Six Nations are on the as well. You know, so you're not really going to you know, want to take a, a step backwards in a training environment in that sort of intensity. So it's difficult. I think uh, the idea behind it, if we should have gone for a regional side or a select or the development side, maybe, and kept it in-house. Uh, there we are. The, the, the powers that be have chosen that route, uh, and uh, yes. we shall see. 
Daffy, give us your thoughts on uh, the well-documented Reese Webb situation. Thoughts on it? Um, yeah, it's quite quite a strange one, actually. I think uh, with regards Reese, you know, he's, he's obviously opted for um, you know to look after his his career. That's honourable, really, with a young family. So mm. you have to respect that. However, you'd have to ask whether he was living in a cocoon for the last twelve months, in particular, because this has been well documented that any player playing across the water, whether it be in England or Wales could jeopardise their career playing for Wales. So, if there are rules, you have to abide to them. Ideally, I think Warren Gatlin has been quite open and honest and said that he wants Rich uh, Webb to go back into the Ospreys and ask for a pay rise, which I find quite farcical. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, um, but you know, he's made his decision. It'd be uh, quite embarrassing, an egg on the face all round, isn't it, if he turned his back on it. So, it's, it's a funny one, Hugo, but... Um, Rules are there. They have to try and abide by them in order to try and keep the best players in Wales. And we haven't got the luxury like England and, and France have with the with the paybooks. Yep. Well, we will soon find out. I su- I would suggest as a former lawyer that there is a wording that can be yeah. a construction that can be put on his pre-contract or pre-arrangement or something which will get uh, get Wales out of this but anyway David we shall see thank you very much mate great as usual yeah take care guys take care bye bye well I'm now pleased to say we can speak to a man who has got many many facets and that's not an exaggeration Richie Gray is currently helping uh, with the coaching at Montpellier he's arguably the world's leading collision coach He's known for his work on health and safety in rugby, previous coaching jobs with Scotland, South Africa, St Helens and the Miami Dolphins. Richie, hello. <laughs> Brian, how are you doing? Good uh, Good evening. That's, uh, that's one impressive list. Now, you say that rugby in the borders was your first love. What sort of era do you remember with fondness? Yeah, I think I think for me, you know, my father coached the south of Scotland for, for years, so... I was always ball boying, and you know, at the time of the eras of Jim Aitkins, John Jeffries, John Rutherford, Roy Laidlaws, all that group you sort of grew up with. It was a sort of real strong time in South of Scotland rugby. Uh, so you were lucky to grow up in and around that. And then you had the huge club games with Gala and Hoyk, Jim Rennick, uh, Peter Dodds, all of these guys. You know, we were so lucky. It was just before that professional era. So yes. all the players were in the club in the district, and you got to see your your heroes every week so you know I'm glad that I've kind of came through that and had a bit of that grounding and then obviously I've gone into pro sport as well Well it's a very general um, rugby education tell us how you seem to uh, get focused on this particular area the breakdown the contact <laughs> It was my, Brian I was a forwards coach and I was uh, funnily enough I was coaching the district about 9-10 years ago and, and coached my local club Gala and I was, I'd been working for the Scottish Rugby Union for about 12 years but I just thought that the way the game was going, there was only going to be more collisions in it. Players were getting stronger, fitter, faster. Defensive systems were coming in. And I just thought that there was going to be far more sort of contact points within the game. And I remember some of my rugby mates thought I was mad when I said, listen, I'm going to give up coaching forwards. I'm going to go into collision and contact only. But since then, that was about seven or eight years ago, it's just seemed to have kind of snowballed since then and obviously you got into creating equipment and coaching that area and I went away and worked with the Springboks for three years and the Springboks Sevens team just finished with them about six months ago so it just seems to be such a huge part of the game that uh, whether you love it or hate it because there's some obviously that would say we don't want to be taking contact we want to be keeping the ball alive and that's the key thing but you know when you're looking at 15 v 15 and the, the size and the weight and the power and the speed of these guys now there's always going to be collisions Richie, hi, it's Hugo here. How's it Hugo, going? Hugo, how are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Good. Yeah, <laughs> Scottish takeover tonight, is it? Exactly, yeah. You're speaking you're speak to the right person about hating your equipment. I've uh, as, as, a, as a back, I definitely didn't like uh, that, that rucking... Um, the, I, the collision king. Oh, my word. Well, yeah, Hugo, that, they only ever said that there was one uh, There was only ever one bit of equipment invented for the backs, and that was a hairdryer. So, uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, how's, how's life in, uh, in Montpellier? I suppose yeah, it's, it's very, di- very different to... You know what what happened with Scotland? Very, very more hands on, I guess, down there. Yeah, it is. I think you know I went down there on purpose mainly because I've I wanted to work in the French top fourteen. It's one of the it's one of the leagues that I've I've not worked in. I've pretty much worked in everywhere else around the world, and I just fancied a crack in France. And I'd been down with Toulouse last year for a couple of weeks, uh, 
and working with Oriak uh, with Jerry Davidson in the in that French second division. And it kind of dawned on me that if I don't go to a club that's got English-speaking coaches, it's going to be pretty difficult. So when when Vern gave me the chance to to go down and, and join them there, and I've signed a year's contract with Montpellier, and then you've got Alex King there as well. Uh, there's that sort of English-French speaking, which makes it a lot easier. And it's amazing, as you know, how quickly you can pick up the rugby-French lingo. So I'm pretty good now at my coaching terminology. I still can't order a pizza, but uh, you know, at the end of the day, the coaching part's the most important bit. So yeah, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. It's a tough old league, as you know. You've been down there and played in it. Uh, it's pretty attritional, and it's a, it's a long old season in France. Before we get on to talk about the uh, issues in rugby, just tell us um, a bit about, because I mean, I am a big, big American football fan. Yeah. I've been to lots of the games that have been played in London um, and, uh, you know, I watch it religiously. How did you, go, who called you to get involved with that? Yeah, it was funny. I was I was actually sitting in the hotel in London before the semi-final of the World Cup. We were about to take on New Zealand. That was South Africa, New Zealand. And I got a phone call from a, a physiotherapist that I met about 15 years ago, a guy called Wayne Diesel, who's now possibly one of the top high-performance directors in world sport, worked at Spurs, uh, did the whole Springboks, went right through the Olympic Games, Commonwealth Games, a really you know, talented guy. And he phoned me out of the blue and just said, listen, we'd like you to come and work with our coaches for four or five days. Would you Would you like to come down to Miami? So I didn't really need uh, <laughs> any any other introduction to that. So down I went and then... One thing led to another, and they asked me to come back, and then I pretty much went back 10 days a month all of last year, working with four or five of the linebackers, looking at the whole tackle technique, and also looking at creating a sort of skills program system in and around tackle that we could develop with those group of players that they're now, they're now rolling out this year, which is great to see. So, no, I was really lucky. Because I always thought, I mean, I, I had the pleasure to sit uh, opposite Howie Long, the ex yeah. you know, the Raiders yeah. uh, monster um, defender. And, and I, I remember saying to him, I understand why you want to stop players dead yeah. when they're within the 10 meet, you know, within, within the 10, ten yards. yards. Yep. I understand ten. that. I yeah. said, but once they've made 10 yards yep. and you're still trying to spear them yeah. and they, you know, they swivel out of tackles or they jump over tackles, I said, why do you, why do you not just. You tackle them in a rugby sense and get them down, <laughs> so they can't make any more yards because they've already made the first down. Yeah, exactly. So, exactly. and he said, "Oh, interesting sort of thing." And I, so, I wondered whether that would come in. Let me let me move on to this one because this is obviously a big one in rugby. Players are having more collisions because the ball is in play more. Yeah. The, the fitter, the um, retention techniques are better, and and yeah. so on and so on. If the current injury rate continues, um, and players are starting to have to retire earlier. Is there anything that can be done, in your opinion, around the breakdown, save for better technique than, you know, to to make it safer? Or is there just an inherent risk and you have to put up with it? No, you know what? I think there's definitely ways that we can make it better. And this is something I'm heavily involved in at the moment, along with a few groups out in the US as well, looking at this. It's, It's funny, you know, to go back... Football's football, rugby's rugby. They're, they're very, very different sports, although they've got a number of crossover techniques in both. But if you look at what American football's done in the last two or three years, they've pretty much now cut down all contact training through the week. So it's about an hour and a half now, heavily looked at by their players' union. You've got the Canadian League that's actually banned contact altogether through the week. So there's no contact training through the week, bone on bone. They do it on training aids, but not bone on bone. And I think for me, Brian, there's a number of things. First and foremost, if you get into a collision sport, you know what you're getting into. So that's, you know, you you know that, and that's part of the deal. But we've also got to make it safer. And I think for me, I keep hearing health and safety all the time, but it's actually performance. It's player performance. And I always believe that if a player is technically proficient in what he's doing, and he's well coached, and we're we're sensible in how we get there through the week. Then I think it's it's not going to stop all the the impact injuries, but it's definitely going to have a huge call on cutting them down. And I would love to see a percentage, and I don't think a study's been done yet, of of injuries through the week in training related to that off the game. And that's where I think in rugby, especially, we're going to have to be really careful in how we get our players to the Saturday afternoon, for example. I think that's 
that's going to be key over the next two or three seasons. But, but do you think on, on that, do you think the, the coaches have the belief um, that the players will mentally still be in the right frame of mind come the game at the weekend if they haven't done some contact? Yeah. I think the key thing, Hugo, is it's about, and this is obviously what I've always believed in over the last five or six years, and this is something that I've really brought in. I think if you if you can train movement patterns in a in a very, very specific way, especially when players are under fatigue, I think you can keep players to a level that sets them ready to go live. Now, some would argue, some would argue against it. It's my opinion. But I've seen it work, and I've seen it work well, and that's where I think the use of training aids is going to become more and more important in rugby union and league and the collision sports in, in general, NFL being another one. So I think if we can if we can train the technique properly in an environment where they're under incredible fatigue, but we're keeping away from that bone-on-bone work, I think we're going to get big benefits there. You know, at the end of the day, has there been studies done in it over five or six years? No, there hasn't. It's just an opinion. But I definitely think we have to be clever at how we go about, you know, bringing our players through to the Saturday afternoon. The bottom line is, I know I've got the best chance of winning if my best players are fit and healthy to go on a Saturday. Well, one of the things that, I mean, Richie, let's face it, if um, the trend continues, at some point, either litigation or um, attrition... Yeah. We'll we'll sort it out for us as a sport. Um and you know, that's what you don't want because no. it will be too late and you know, some people will have gone sadly by the wayside if either of those things happen. So yeah. I'd just like to see there are being a consistent and open channel with World Rugby yeah. uh, at all levels to try and, you know, introduce these notions and to do the studies before we get to a situation where we're forced to do them. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I think you know, again, if you look at NFL, there's there's billion dollar lawsuits ongoing at the moment for the whole area of concussion, mm-hmm. what the sport hadn't done to protect players over the years, what they had done to protect, and I think in some ways, and all of us are to blame here. We were very reactive four or five years ago. Now we must be proactive. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of it was down to, and I look at myself as a coach, you know, and the way I was brought up coaching the Scottish Borders. It was actually a, a kind of big thing for a coach if all of a sudden you'd had three or four guys stitched in your session on a Tuesday night because it was seen as, you know, a tough session and, you know, how many guys uh, didn't survive the session on Tuesday night. And it used to be a bit of a sort of macho standing joke, which mm-hmm. now when you look back, you just you, you cringe at that, you know, yes. because we were actually doing it wrong. But we didn't understand then and we didn't have the medical backup that we have now. And... Quite simply, we have to look at the way that we prepare players through the week. It's as simple as that. If we don't, we actually won't have any players left. And, you know, I love the collision sport. I love my rugby. I've been born and brought up in it. I enjoy the other collision sports as well, league and NFL. You want them to continue, but we've got to make sure that we get our players to an end point in a sensible way. Richie, fascinating to talk to you, and thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank Great you. Stuff. Thanks, Thanks guys. Cheers. Right now, time to speak to someone who can take us through the opening salvos of the Rugby League World Cup. It's former Hull FC, Hull KR Lock, Paul Cook. Hello, Paul. Hello there, Brian. You're always waiting with England uh, when they play (laughs) Australia for them just to do it. They get close, and I remember tweeting early on the game, I said, I hope I'm wrong, but this has got a familiar feel of very near but no cigar, and that's indeed what turned out. Is that a is that a question of confidence? Uh, is it a question of, of of Australia not doing showing the full hand or or what? N- near miss. Yeah, again, I think you're right. Close but no cigar, and um, very very good in performance in patches, but still not a result. And and ultimately, it is a results based business. If you face Australia in a quarter final or a semi final, a win is all that matters. And I know that the coach Wayne Bennett obviously spoke about. The performance being really important and piling the pressure on Australia, but you know, for for the players within that bubble, I just you know just have a question on whether they believe that they can get over the line against Australia, mm-hmm. and it's been that long that as it really mentally affected them. And I know Australia are overwhelming favourites to win the World Cup, and you know the players that they've got out would probably give England a game injured. So um, you know, let alone the players that are actually playing. So. It's just a question of mentality for me. And do the players genuinely believe that they can get over Australia in a game which really matters? 
Well, a lot to build on. I mean, I thought that the uh, the way that the wingers, in particular, Jermaine McGilvery and Ryan Hall, were willing to share the workload and take the ball on the second, you know, and third carries and be very effective was was hugely helpful. Yeah, absolutely. I thought the back three, all all the stats that added up really well, and you know, for, for the amount of meters and carries that they had, and uh, there was you know equal to, to probably the Australian back three, but. You know, just that question of quality, isn't it, at the end? And can we find that killer pass and, or, or you know, that really killer play and, and be really accurate and execute it and, and, and score points off the back of it? That's what we probably question a little bit. But, yeah, you're right. I think a lot of the players stood up, you know, stats-wise and against their opposition. But still, as you said, still, still no win. And, and ultimately, no matter how good individuals stack up against the Australians, it, it, it's the result at the end of the day that matters. Now, you tell me, now, you've mentioned the killer plays. Now, by let me try and clarify what I think you mean by that. When you get into the, uh, the opponent's 22 and you're going forward, you know, third or fourth tackle, and you take it left or right, you get the positioning right of where you want the ball to be. That's when you get the deep balls. That's when you get the runarounds. That's when you get the strike runners at different angles. And it seemed to me that that wasn't off pat in the way that, for example, you would see with a club side who was doing well. Is that just a question of familiarity and not enough time to to bed that in, or or is it is it some is it is it is it more than that? Which is which would be worrying. Listen, I think I think there's a little bit of that. I think there's a little bit of the limited time that players spend together, um, you know, and, and understanding each other's game in, in a limited amount of time. But I thought England. The, the halfbacks in particular squared up at the line really well. The back rows hit, hit the right line, dragging the right man. Uh, the fullback out the back low, Max, was three on two. And just a couple of times, the ball's behind McGilvery. Yeah. Number one's there where he's caught it behind his head. He's had to jump for it. And by, by that time, that split second, Brian, it's over. And, yeah. and, and Australia can shut it down. And, and I think that's what I mean by the quality. I think that if there wasn't creating them opportunities, you'd be really worried in football terms that be to be creating lots of chances and not scoring goals. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, I thought they created opportunities, but you don't get too many of them against the Australians, and you've really got to be good with your execution and your accuracy on the edges. And, and I just thought they lacked a little bit of that England. Um, thought the right edge was a little bit better than the left edge, and mm-hmm. you know maybe that's Gareth Widdop stepping stepping up who, who plays. Obviously in the NRO we say George Illawarra, and you know Luke Gill's maybe got to take a little bit more ownership of that left edge. So um, yeah, whilst they created some opportunities, they still come up a little bit short with a little bit of inaccuracy and so. You know some players that I think we can probably get better with. Uh, let's look elsewhere. There were wins for uh, Ireland over Italy, Lebanon over France, uh, Tonga uh, big win against Scotland. Uh, same similar for Papua New Guinea against Wales. Uh, a big uh, physical clash. New Zealand coming out on top, thirty-eight eight against Samoa, and then a big win for Fiji. Looking out of those sides, are we really just looking at um, in in realistic contention? New Zealand. Is anyone going to touch? Touch, touch them. Well, I think the, the the Tonga squad really, you know, got people talking and, yep. and raised some eyebrows. I think, obviously, Jason Tamalolo was, you know, on a million million dollar contract for ten years with with North Queensland, defect, deflected from from New Zealand um, uh, to, to Tonga. Obviously, Andrew Fifita. Uh, he's deflected from Australia to play for Tonga. So they've got one or two big names in there. Michael Jennings, the left centre, has played a hell of a lot of state of origin and, and, and Australian rep football. So I think their squads um, maybe may made it a little bit more interesting this World Cup. And, mm-hmm. and obviously when you go down to the South Sea Islands and you're playing Papua New Guinea or Fiji, if you're ever lucky enough to go there, it's, it's one hell of an atmosphere. And that's, you know, they've they've obviously got some NRL standard players in their teams as well. And, um, you know, they're, cert- they're certainly giving it to, to the Northern Hemisphere teams at the minute. When you look at the score lines, you know, 58 Fiji have scored and 50 Tonga, uh, uh, Papua New Guinea and 50 Tonga. So, um, you know, the, the Northern Hemisphere teams have certainly got it all on. And I think the Tonga squad makes it really interesting. Um, you know, if, if they meet England at any time in, in a knockout game, then that could be right, uh, one hell of a game. Uh, the perennial question is, given a bit of luck, which you need, given a fair wind and possibly a couple of decisions, is there anyone who can beat Australia? Uh, in a one-off game, probably, yeah. Um, you know, you only need that little bit of luck in a one-off game uh, against the, the best team in the world. But, listen, they're certainly overwhelming favourites. And what, what's worrying for me that, that England have, 
I've obviously had a lot of emotion in the first game of the mm-hmm. tournament where that'll carry you through so long but for me the Australians will only get better and it's that age-old question with England and, and any other team that, that come up against Australia. When they're getting better, can you match them? Um, mm. you know, Because they're certainly going to get better and there's no question about that. Uh, the question is, can, can the other nations step up with them? Well, we shall see. And let's hope that... Um, well, England have got Lebanon up next, so let's hope that that's not a, a banana skin because uh, you don't necessarily associate Lebanon with rugby at all. But they've, they've, got, they've got enough useful players. Yeah, they have obviously coached by Brad Fittler, the, the New South Wales State of Origin legend player. So, yeah, I mean, you know, they was impressive against France. I think France was probably favourites going into that one, but they pulled off a shock themselves, Lebanon. And, listen, if there is a banana skin and it, and, and it does happen at the weekend, then England will be flying home early, that's for sure. Oh, we can't have that. Anyway, Paul, thank you very much. Uh, we'll, we'll see how the tournament progresses. And let's hope that someone can do a number on the Aussies. Let's hope so. Cheers, Brian. Cheers, mate. Time now to go through the Tyrrell Premier 15s, which uh, turned out as a Darlington Moden Park Sharks 16, Loughborough Lightning 10, Furwood Waterloo Ladies 12, Richmond FC 15, Gloucester Hartbury Women's RFC 7, Saracens 33, Bristol Ladies 5, Wasps Ladies 17, Worcester Valkyries 0, Quinns Ladies 71, which leaves Quinns still at the top of the table. And we can actually speak to the person who came in for a bit of stick about this uh, because he inherited a job when these decisions had been made. Uh, I remember him as a scrum half and the captain of Yorkshire schools when they made me sit on the bench uh, behind uh, a public school boy from Sedba, uh, which I've never forgotten and I'm still very bitter about. Uh, but it's Nigel Melville, who is the new director of England Professional Rugby, taking over from Rob Andrew. Nigel, have you read his book? I haven't actually. No, I thought you'd tell me all about that. <laughs> well, I can selectively quote things from it, uh, but it won't do us. It won't do us any good. Look, Nigel, when you came, you walked into the Ferrari, um, not entirely self-inflicted. I, I hasten to add about women's rugby. What's yeah. but the the announcements recently have been slightly different. Can you tell us where we are with the impending new pay structure? Well, we're following the strategy that was always in place, which was. World Cup 15s contracts all the way through to the end of the World Cup, guys going back to work and 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 moving on from there. Uh, sevens being the focus for contracts for this particular year, going through Commonwealth Games and World Cup, and then hopefully within three or four years' time, by the next World Cup, having both sevens and 15s contracted. So, you know, moving that. So that forward, is the that is the aim to have full time, yeah. you know, and the division there, but uh, but to be professional in both areas. I think what we'll see. In three or four years' time, people start to be specialists in those areas of sevens players or fifteens. We've seen it in the men's rugby. I think we'll see it in women's rugby in three or four years' time. Mm-hmm. So I think at the moment we've got one pool of players um, and they're, they're now trying to expand that pool. If we can get that pool expanded, we can then have fifteens and sevens players and compete on both fronts with professional contracts. The Terrell's Premier 15s is a step which is, um, I would say, raise the profile of women's rugby. What was the reason behind these the franchises and, you know, for example, um, Litchfield were obviously very upset yeah. um, about uh, the way in which they didn't get awarded one, but what was the reason for the awards as to where they are now? Well, the first point was to get a, a competition that we could invest in in terms of minimum standards, in terms of grounds, in terms of S&C, the, the strength and conditioning part, the medical piece, and make sure we've got the players' welfare taken care of. Um, put the opportunity to get 10 teams geographically based around the country so that we've got a spread of elite teams around the country that we can build in the next two or three years. Um, and in order to do that, we went through this process, obviously. Um, some, I think 14, 15 teams applied. We could only get 10 in, and uh, the best 10 were judged on, on, on various criteria. So we ended up where we ended up. We had a competition. Tyrrells came as a sponsor, which is fantastic to get a sponsor. It's the first real women's only sponsor we've got. And I think that's a great step forward for women's sport and probably shown, shows where we're going. And then uh, each club registers 30 to 60 players, which gives us 600 players in the pool that we can start to look at regarding growing the squad, making things bigger, making things more competitive, branding and building the sport and every week seeing competitive games. Uh, my uh, two uh, eldest uh, girls... Um, they've both played many rugby. One stopped now because she stopped when uh, she was eleven. Do you? Are you aware? That, to me, the, the challenge is 
um, to maintain the age groups. Now, obviously, there are stepping stones after 11 for girls only, but it's not every year. And obviously, the clubs who uh, run uh, girls only teams are quite disparate because of the numbers. Once, they, once you crack um, there being enough uh, clubs available for girls to carry on and augment the school stuff, then the game, in my opinion, women's rugby, will just leap again there. Are, are, what's the working toward, towards that? Is it, is it, is it steady or, or is it targeted or what, what's the plan? It's a very important point you raise because obviously they're competing with boys and girls together until they get to about 11, 12 years of age. And so when they get to that age, when they have to separate, you sometimes have too few girls to create a team, correct? Yep. yep. And so uh, I saw this in the States when I was there. And what they do in the States, and we can do that over here, is basically you get multi, multi-school teams or multi-club teams. You have to make sure you get games for these kids. So yep. the easiest way to do it is make sure clubs get bandied together to get more people playing and maybe compete as a multi-school or a multi-club team for a few years or even a year whilst they get more participation and eventually gravitate towards single teams. Mm-hmm. And that's a way to bring that along. And it is a big challenge for the women's game, and it has been for quite a long time. Now, hopefully that's an area that we can crack because we want to increase the number of participants from 25,000 to 50,000 in the next three or four years. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, if we, if we can engage with around 100,000 uh, women and girls, uh, we'll get a 50,000 players regularly playing at different levels. Yeah, uh, let's move on to aspects of the uh, the men's game. Mm-hmm. Where are you on this structured longer season proposal that uh, the uh, Premiership clubs have put in? Well, as you know, there's been talk about it. We haven't seen you know specific proposals, obviously. There's been a lot put out there and a lot talked about. At the end of the day, for me, a lot comes down to the off-season. There has to be a period of off-season for players to recover, to come back into training, to rejuvenate, to strengthen, to get their game time practicing, to build into contact sport. And that takes a number of weeks. Now, at the moment, we've got a 10-week window that we try to put for our EPS players. Um, and there's talk about a 12- or a 14-week window. Let's look at the off-season and get the sports science and the medical science behind it to make sure that our players get the correct rest. I think that in itself will determine the length of the season because the gap between the seasons, whatever is required, will determine the, the, the actual size of the season, the length of the season. So we need to put that in place. And when I go around other sports and you look across the world at different sports, rugby has the smallest, one of the smallest off-seasons of all, apart from hockey um, over in the States and Canada. So I think it's very important we start to look at that off-season to make sure we look after the players and make sure they get the required rest and recovery. Nigel, it's Hugo here. How's it going? Hi, Hugo. How are you? Yeah, good. Thank you. Good. good. Just going back to uh, um, your chat about the investment in the game. Obviously, mm. um, there's been a lot in the women's game. Um, there's been talk uh, recently about the, the 440 million that's going to go back into uh, into different levels uh, of the game grassroots. Can you tell us more about that? The structure of how that's going to work? Yeah, well, every year, you know, we're putting somewhere around 100 million going back into the sport um, in development and professional, and it's split uh, split accordingly to make sure that we're, we're hitting the game at all levels. It's not just going into the elite, and it's not just going into development. So we're trying to build the game. And obviously, you know, we're keen to be competitive at sevens and fifteens, um, and, and in the global game internationally. At the same time, we want to develop our, our, our girls and our women's strategy. We want to develop our, our men's, our clubs, and every other format of the game that comes along, because there'll be others coming along in the in the future. So really, it's keeping us strong at all levels and building for the future and sustaining the success. Hopefully, we're having at the top end. Um, whose idea was it to train with Wales? In the forwards. Uh, did you know about this? I found out about it last week. So <laughs> I think it was Warren and, uh, and Eddie uh, getting together and coming up with some ideas, and uh, that's what they're going to do. So it'll be interesting. It is Something going to be new. refereed properly, isn't it? Because I can, I can only imagine what it would have been like, you know, and about probably what, what it will be like if it's left uh, unshepherded. Yeah, I think it's Eddie and Warren are refereeing. So that'll be good <laughs> to see. Alternate scrums, you can do one each. Fair enough. Nigel, look, um, in, in terms of your... The, Rob always said to me that it was very difficult because he, he, sometimes he didn't really know um, exactly you know, the remit of his job. Um, are your terms of reference, are they nailed down a bit, a bit, bit more precisely? 
Yeah, mine are pretty precise, and we know exactly what we're on to. I mean, there were two departments that um, have now come together as one. So we have seven, mm-hmm. seven verticals beneath me. I know exactly who is doing what, be it the competition side, the referees side, the sports science, the pathways, the men's, the women's, the sevens. So we're covered off in each area. And really, it's about, it's about supporting the national teams at the top end, about building for the future from the academies all the way up to the national teams and providing consistent and aligned support to our teams. So really, whether it be talent ID at the, at the foot of the table or whether it's building all the way up, and I know you know as well as that, you, know, you agree with me on this one, is that it's not just about the elite players, it's about the whole of the game. Yep. It's about the young kids, because we all came from somewhere, just as we came from Yorkshire in those under-16s days. Um, we came from somewhere, and we had that opportunity to push all the way to the top, and we took it, but it was there for us, and we've got to make sure those pathways stay open. Well, still, I mean, if you look statistically, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's the case that, that seven out of 15 players come from the north, irrespective of, you know, of how many teams there are at the top level or not. You know, that, that, that uh, mini and school system is very productive. Let me just finally ask you this. You spent a lot of time um, in America and everyone has always said, and it's right, if America ever gets their act together, they will be a huge force because of the athletic talent there. And that's undoubtedly true. And yet... There are specific and, and almost intractable problems because of the size of the country, the expense of flying uh, players from one coast to the other where the rugby is based. Can you see them genuinely making a big leap in the next sort of 10, 15 years or is it just going to be a slog? It's going to be a, a slow, slow burn, but I think it's made... I'll say that because I was there, but over the last 10 years we grew significantly. And I think we showed and demonstrated in sevens what is possible when you get the right athletes together in the right environment. The challenge we've got is the number of athletes being you know, keen to play rugby at the right time because there are so many other sports there, particularly American football, especially you know, the likes of basketball, baseball, taking away a lot of time from these young kids at high school that they don't get a chance to play rugby at an early stage. Now, that's changed. A lot of kids now playing rugby. The, the competition is now key and they need regular competition, but it's very, very hard to get. It's extremely expensive to travel around the country. And that's the, the real problem. And at the end of the day, when college footballers come out of college and don't go to the NFL, they turn around and say, yeah, I'd love to play rugby, but what are you going to give me? Where's my money? Yep. Because they are brought up as professional sportsmen. Yes. They don't understand amateur sports and the elite end. It's about you know, a job. It's about money. So that has to be there for them. And hopefully we can crack that. And uh, eventually in time, there'll be more and more money coming into the game. And they're worth an investment from world rugby, because if you're going to invest in anywhere in the world, it's the biggest sports economy in the world. We should be in there. Nigel, um, thank you very much, mate. Uh, Fascinating to speak to you. Long memories I have of your schools, and long may they they be kept. Cheers, mate. Cheers, mate. Take Take care. care. Bye-bye. Hugo, that's all we've got time for. Uh, You've been listening to... Brian Moore's full contact in association with The Telegraph. Thank you to my co-host, Hugo Southwell, and my producer, as always, Abby Patterson. Remember, please subscribe to the podcast because it's completely free, and that way you'll never miss an episode. We'll be back again next week, but uh, for now, goodbye. Brian Moore's full contact is just one part of The Telegraph Sport podcast family as you can also subscribe and download Total Football. Join Tom Gibbs and a host of Telegraph football reporters as they aim to take you behind the football stories of the weekend. Your Monday morning commutes will be instantly better for it.